0: Welcome to Media Tribe. I'm Shauna Kinnair, and this is the podcast that tells the story behind the story. It's an opportunity for you and I to step into the shoes of the most extraordinary media folk who covered the issues that matter most.
1: I argued forcefully to have these photographs in public because I thought they could exemplify and also visualize a period of time in which George W. Bush, before he really turned the corner in his life, has struggled and they decided otherwise. And I'll never actually forget that as a sort of turning point in my mind of, I think I need to probably work at a place where tough journalism is gonna be supported and backed.
0: My guest today is Rainey Aronson, the executive producer of PBS Frontline, PBS's flagship investigative journalism series. Frontline has won every major award under Rainey's leadership, including Peabody Awards, Emmy Awards and DuPont Columbia Awards. Rainey is a leading voice on the future of journalism. Rainey, thank you so much for coming on the Media Tribe podcast. Absolutely. Where to start with you, Rainey? You've had such uh, an illustrious career. Do you want to tell our audience about your journey into journalism and filmmaking and how you became the executive producer at PBS Frontline? That is such a big question.
1: That's a big one. I think the best way to understand my journey starts with actually my upbringing, which is pretty unusual. I grew up um, in an off-the-grid st- Setting in Vermont, a very, very rural part of Vermont. And my parents basically made this decision for us to live there. And I um, was brought up without a television, but the one thing that we had was the newspaper and it would come every day. And as a young person, I mean, I can still remember waiting for the mail to come and opening up the newspaper. And for me, that was an entry point into the world. And I've always been so. Um, committed to this idea that people all across America and the world for that matter now really deserve to have high quality journalism. And I had it growing up, right? But it was really in the form of a newspaper. And for me, um, I started out actually as a writer and uh, I was, um, I went to college. I lived in India in college. And then right after college um, was early nineties and it was actually another recession Um, and certainly smaller recession than we're facing um, currently. But one thing I decided to do is to go overseas again and to live in Taiwan, actually, um, teaching English. And so I had to support myself and I paid my way. I got over there as as a teacher and I immediately started to see this incredible thing happening in Taiwan, which is this democratic revolution. And I had done journalism as a college student for one of the the greatest college papers, the Daily Cardinal, and actually Anthony Shadid was my editor. So I had had college experience, but my real first job in, in the world at large was in Taiwan, where I uh, worked for a paper called the China Post, and it was a job on top of my job. So I taught English, but I still really, um, you know, the thing that I took the most joy in was being a reporter. and. It was in Taiwan that I got to see, you know, democracy in action. The first time the Taiwanese people voted, I was there watching and observing. And I was a very young reporter at the time. So, you know, I really I really was able to do more feature level stories at that point. But I really was so struck by the power of journalism. And it started
0: really in my early 20s. And I got the bug and I never looked back. Well that's brilliant, Rainey. I'm guessing at that time you say the nineties in Taiwan. So I'm guessing you know it was the emergence of the free press over there. Did that influence your decision then really to to end up at PBS. And I think, you know, before we we delve into your career there, I think it's really worth pointing out that PBS is a public broadcast service in the US um, because our, our audience might not fully comprehend how important that is in a country where the president calls journalists a stain on America.
1: Yeah, I mean, absolutely. So, I mean, I think the journey, that part of my journey actually begins with the form of the stories I was really driven to tell. So I was a writer. I went to Columbia Journalism um, graduate level, and I had to actually support myself during graduate school. So I had to work and I had these language skills. So I was actually hired as a translator to work the overnight shift on a documentary series translating. So it was the first time I had been exposed to documentary film. And what was incredible for me as a young person, um, you know, I didn't have to sleep at that point in my life. I don't even know how that's possible looking back, except I guess I'm a mother. So I do know. But at the time, I was like literally in the edit room. My eyes were just opened in a way that they just had never been before. And I knew that was the form I wanted to work in. And so actually, it started with me with form, even though at journalism school at Columbia, I was a writer. I decided at that point, by the time I graduated from Columbia, that I really wanted to be in documentary filmmaking. And so that's been my guiding light, actually. Um, I do remember when I was in the edit room, you know, this light bulb going off multiple times. And I would just stay in the edit next to the assistant editor asking him a million questions. And I look back at that, and I'm so grateful to him for actually being patient with all my questions. and the executive producer and producers would come in the morning and ask me why I was still there. And I was like, because I absolutely loved the form. And so that was actually my entry point was, you know, being at Columbia, but then also being hired as a translator on a public television documentary series. And it was a very junior level role, but I learned so much at that, you know, on that series, which was called emerging powers. Um, And it was an international series looking at emerging economies. And it was one of the most extraordinary experiences as a young person. And that was really my jumping off point to saying, where should my career go? Um, And it it was a number of years before I ended up at Frontline. But I think that is really the big turning point for me was committing to that form. So a lot of my career has been about how do I do the work that I really want to do as opposed to um, you know a different type of journalism so i was at the networks i was at abc news and i was in their hour long unit but at night i was also working on my own documentary film that i hoped would be seen on public television so i was always really committed to this idea of you know public television and this in this space to do non-profit journalism in the public interest. That is what drives me through and through.
0: That's amazing, Rainey. I honestly didn't know some of that background. I mean, you sound like a workhorse, it has to be said. Um, you don't sleep and and, and you work tirelessly. Um, I believe you joined Frontline in 2001, Rainey. Is that right? Yeah. So I actually joined
1: Frontline right before 9-11 officially, but then ABC News asked me to stay on through 9-11, which of course I obliged. And stayed. And I'm really proud of the work that we did. Um, And we were working with Peter Jennings and that whole crew. Um, But yeah, I joined Frontline uh, in 2001 as a producer and director myself. So I actually spent a decade making films for Frontline before I went into the management of Frontline. So I'm actually a filmmaker running Frontline. And I think that's the key to my job and why i love it is that i'm still a maker in my heart right a lot of the work that i do in the edit rooms with filmmakers works because i was a filmmaker and a lot of people who are in editor roles like if you think about it right a lot of them have been journalists themselves for years and years and years before they became an editor and the same is true for the tradition at frontline like my job is contingent upon me knowing how to make a film taking a film apart and making it better. And, and I had a whole decade of working with Frontline before I came into the management. So I worked with David Fanning, Lou Wiley, you know, the, the people who ran Frontline before me were my executive producer and executive editors. Those are the people that helped me make films. And so it's a tradition that I think served me well as making my actual films before going um, into the role of, of then, you know,
0: managing and helping um, others. Well, I think that's really important, Rainey, as well, because you really understand the pressure that filmmakers are under, you know the stresses that come with it. and do you see your role as protecting big, important journalism at frontline?
1: Yeah, I mean, protecting big, important journalism is central to me all the time. I'm thinking about how do we do our best and bravest journalism and how do we hold those in power to account? That is a daily um uh, you know, it's basically the number one thing I'm thinking about every day. Are we being smart enough, tough enough, fair enough? Um, and those that trifecta is really what drives me as a person. Is you know, how do we tell these stories? But how are we fair? How are we tough? How do we have the the evidence and the um, wherewithal to continue being investigative reporters? And I think that's the essence of what drives all investigative types like myself and all the people who work for Frontline is. How do we do that work with clear eyes, with evidence and proof, and how do we hold those in power to account? And we're given that space at Frontline to do that day after day after day. I've never had a situation at Frontline where somebody's leaned into our work and said, you can't say this or that. We're just, you know, something that we say at Frontline a lot. And, And I always remind my leadership about this and our team about this is, we're only as good as we are, right? There's nobody from the outside pressuring us. So now we need to hold ourselves to account too. And how good are we? And how hard are we working? And which story should we be telling? How do we have equity at the center of our decision-making? And how do we make sure that we're making the right decisions? So this is something that's a daily conversation at Frontline.
0: Well, so well said. And, and I know the culture at Frontline. You're very <laughs> you much do. promotion. You know. You're, you're, <laughs> I know. You're t- yeah, exactly. And you report, you know, you report against your assumptions at every every turn right. at Frontline. That um, is something that when I came to Frontline
1: from the networks, that was, my eyes were so wide open. And this is the process. It's a wonderful editorial process and one that I, that every single day we're following. It's essentially the idea that once you believe something in your reporting, then you need to try to actually tackle it you know you need to report against yourself at all times and that's the role of an editor right or an executive producer in my case is saying why why do you believe that how do you believe that who told you that how do you know that and sometimes it's like you know it's actually a sport in the sense of like you're really trying to give credibility to um, what would be perceived as the other side of an argument enough so that where when you land you feel that you've been fair. And that's something, it's not objective, right? It's not 50-50 ever frontline. And in fact, investigative journalism isn't 50-50, right? Investigative journalism says, you know, this is something that you're investigating. And when you found out what you need to find out enough of, then you can bring that evidence to the people who are in charge of whatever you're investigating or the players that matter and ask them tough questions. And That's the kind of um, culture at Frontline that really equals great journalism. In my mind, that's why we're continuing to do that level of journalism is because we have a culture in which we ask each other tough questions and people ask me tough questions all day long. So it's not just one way. You know, this is is something and you've experienced it, Shauna, you've seen it in action where we really do have that dynamic of us all being able to ask each other really tough, clear-eyed questions.
0: Exactly. Um, Rainey, big question. I know you're going to struggle with this, um, but is there a story or project um, that you feel really proud of? Perhaps it was something that had true impact that you'd like to tell our audience about?
1: Oh, there are so many at Frontline that I've overseen. I I really, I. it's almost hard for me to choose. I'm so proud of the producers and directors who work for Frontline. In terms of my own work, I think the work that I'm most proud of is actually the work that I did that was in the field called The Jesus Factor. And it was the time in my life um, where I was spending a lot of time in the field for ABC News at, at a, um, in the sort of before the Bush and Gore big presidential um, uh, moment. And I had been able to build these relationships with George W. Bush's um, Midland Bible study. And so I really got inside the evangelical community of Midland, Texas. And it was there where I really started to build my sources around the evangelical mindset. And also I started to understand how they were convening. So that was something that I was really proud of. In terms of um, then coming to Frontline, I was able to do The Jesus Factor as a film. So before that, I was doing more news-related work for ABC on that issue. But it was something that I really felt like I kept reporting on. And I think inside the culture war territory is where I'm most proud of, is how do we construct conversations, right? And we did that with America's Great Divide, where we really went inside this division right now, the divisiveness in our culture. And we said, how can we construct a narrative inside this? Again, that's clear-eyed, right? That's not a platform for hate. It's not a platform for lies, but has an honest conversation about people with different points of view. and. That's something that we've really been working on at Frontline. So I'm really, that's something that I I really want to continue doing that level of reporting and and thinking.
0: That's so interesting. And I think, uh, as you say, now more than ever, you know, we do need to be able to step onto the other side of the court and understand people and listen to people. Do you feel that empathy plays a great role in journalism at the moment, or at least should play a great role in journalism?
1: You know, I think empathy is at the center of all great decision making. I don't think it just relates to journalism. I think you need to remain empathetic to not just the people who disagree with each other in your films, but also to the impact your films could have on their lives. We can give you multiple examples of situations in which Frontline has slowed down to think hard about when we publish this, what kind of impact would it have? The other thing is having empathy in the field. Like, as a field producer and a producer myself, there were times where we made decisions together on access, where it just felt like this was not the right decision to to actually tell the story in the way that the network might have wanted you to tell it, right? And I think that, that, that those kind of really ethical, I would call, decisions, rather than just empathetic decisions, are actually central to frontline journalism. Thinking hard, taking the time to ask the questions, and actually... What we say is turning the rock over, thinking about it from multiple different, you know, directions. Like, how is this going to come out? What kind of impact will it have? Is that much of a personal story necessary? I know it's emotional. I know it's very important to have some emotion and to show what somebody's feeling. But do you need to go to the gratuitous level that um, a lot of media now does, right? Do we need to go there or can we do it in a way that's still... Elegant and respectful to the human experience. I know that sounds a bit naive, but what what drives us is ethical decision making. And we try so hard. You know, if you looked under the hood of frontline, you know, we might make a mistake, but you would see a lot of people trying hard to make a decision
0: that's responsible. And I think that's that's where we come down. Well, and actually it leads to a question that I wanted to ask you about. Um, Frontline's Transparency Project, um, which I believe you've called the antidote to fake news. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that and how important that is?
1: Right. I mean, one of the things after the 2016 election that really uh, that was starting to really dawn upon me, it's like and it's now obvious, is that there's such a profound lack of trust in the media right now. And actually, I was on a night commission, and I spent a whole year studying this with other people. It was an incredible experience for me. And what we found was actually the lack of trust in the media was, was all the way down to the roots of the media, right? So one of the big disruptive forces in our time right now is how disrupted local media is, right? So it used to be that trust would begin at a local level, and then that would trickle not down, but actually up to national. So as local journalism has been um, you know, really disrupted and, you know, unfortunately it's falling apart right now, national media is struggling, right? And I think I think to some degree we need to hold ourselves to account to this, but also I think the forces at play, like social media, really have tilted us in a direction. And it's a very obvious thing to say, where everything is so quick twitch that nobody trusts anything anymore. And the president also. Um, calling us fake news over and over and over again uh, does not help build, obviously, credibility in the press, right, in the press core. So what I decided to do, and Phil Bennett and Andrew Metz and others of us at the table, Sarah Childress, we put our heads together to say, what can we do that's proactive to build trust? And the thing that we have a tradition of at Frontline is publishing our transcripts. And that goes back to 1995, if you can believe it. David Fanning and his team—they wanted to publish transcripts to give people the idea that you could trust Frontline, right? You can look at our absolute like take take off your you know glasses, take a look. You can look very closely at Frontline, right? And the way that you can do that is by reading the whole interview as opposed to what's just seen in a film. So what we did is we decided to take it a step. Um, basically, technology caught up with the idea. It's a great thing. We now publish our films. Um, you know the films themselves but we also publish video interviews so the actual video not just the text transcripts and they're searchable so you can search them you can look for the sync that you saw in the film and you can actually compare it to what was in the actual conversation and my key to the key to this is the idea that we want you to examine us we want you to come under the hood of frontline and to ask us tough questions and we want the people that we're interviewing to know we're not going to edit them out of context. And we have an accountability system at Frontline that's going to publish enough that that's, that that's the case. Like, look at our underlying materials and then you can, you can come and ask us tough questions. We're really open to that. So that's what we do now. We've called it the Frontline Transparency Project. You'd be amazed at how many millions of views we have for these videos. People love to see unedited, real conversations with our producers and it's a huge effort it has to be legally vetted and you know all of the same journalism rules apply to this as it applies to a published um, film right so if you think about it all of this is published material so it needs to be vetted editorially and legally as well right for things like libel factual errors um, lies things that happen in interviews, right? So we we edit for that only. And that's, that's a huge effort underway at Frontline now for a number of years. I'm really proud of that.
0: I think it's brilliant. I mean, what you've essentially done is, you know, you've made your source material available exactly. to the audience so they can see you haven't, as you say, Rainey, edited people out of context. Your team haven't been subjective in any way. What you see is what you get. So nobody could um accuse you guys of, of being fake news or, or what have you
1: I mean certainly that you know what what you do your actions really can help but then of course there's the social media stratosphere in which things can be taken out of context still but what we have seen is people really appreciate this effort I mean you should see the thousands of comments on these videos thanking us for allowing people to see the underlying materials and I know as a producer, and the wayback machine, my ability to be able to tell someone that I was interviewing, your whole transcript will be online gave them so much ease to talk to me. You know, it was like instant trust I could sit down and talk to them because they knew that they weren't going to be taken out of out of context as much as they might trust me personally. they everybody distrusts everyone. So I think there is a moment in which we're all thinking like, oh, are we going to be taken out of context? Is the one part of the interview that's really spicy going to be spiced up even, right? So I think this is what
0: we're trying to do. I think it's brilliant. Um, Rainey, I'm going to squeeze one little question in before I get to my last question. Um of <laughs> I know because I've had the honor of working with you, but I know you're very big into joint journalism projects. You've worked with, you know, the likes of ProPublica, obviously Channel 4 and the BBC and, and the Financial Times, of course, recently. Um, how important is collaborative journalism in your eyes?
1: Well, I mean, collaboration for Frontline is everything, right? I mean, it was um before it was really in vogue, we were doing it because I came from, and actually, in fact, Frontline's always collaborated, right? Way ahead of itself, again. But I think when I came in, my desire was to fortify our investigative journalism. And I was immediately struck with, like, I I didn't have the exact solution to that because I didn't have a huge increased budget for that desire, right, and that ambition. So what I thought about immediately was how can I convene Resources. This is how I think constantly. And I do oversee our entire budget. At this point, I'm thinking, how do I make sure that more people see our work, but most importantly, that we do the bravest and biggest journalism that we can do. And that actually really started in earnest with groups like ProPublica and others where we're putting our heads together, the New York Times and recently the Financial Times, an incredible example of collaboration with you and your team. And also the Wall Street Journal and many others where we're coming together to say, OK, you could have one reporter for Frontline or you could have five reporters when you put your heads together and work together. Now, collaborations aren't easy. They're never they're never simple. But the upside is so big that we, we go for them often. And and uh, we're, we're never we've never been disappointed. Um, I mean, seriously, there's only been one collaboration that went awry. And that had nothing to do with the journalists in the middle of it. That had everything to do with corporate uh, structures and, and different agendas.
0: I think I know the one, but we won't go into that, Rainey. Let me ask you my final question. Um, this is one I love asking Rainey and I always encourage my guests to tr- to throw colleagues and friends under the bus and, <laughs> and have a bit of fun. Um, but is there a crazy moment in your career that you could tell us about that has never quite made it to air that perhaps, you know, your colleagues at Frontline don't know about something absolutely bonkers that you'd like to um, delve into? Well,
1: I, you, you know me pretty well, so I don't throw people under the bus just as a regular, like as a rule, right? So I don't love like media gossip, but I will tell you, and it has everything to do with why I ended up at Frontline. And these were really profound moments for me as a person and also as a journalist and really helped me understand that I needed to do something different. I needed to find a different place to work in terms of doing journalism. So I had obtained A tranche of photographs of George W. Bush and Laura Bush and um, his friends uh, during the era in which they uh, partied and they drank a lot. And they, uh, you know, the pictures were really vivid. And before we did um, the political uh, documentary for ABC News, um, the management of ABC decided not to use those photographs. And um, there were a lot of reasonings that went into that, but essentially, I was a young producer in a room full of people who were making this decision and um I argued forcefully to have these photographs in public because I thought they could exemplify and also visualize a period of time in which George W Bush before he really turned the corner in his life had struggled right and I thought it was a really important moment um and they decided otherwise and those photographs were um taken from me in that moment. And uh, I'll never actually forget that as a sort of turning point in my mind of, I think I need to probably work at a place where um, tough journalism is going to be supported and backed. Um, The interesting thing about that story was, you know, looking back in my career as a turning point was that I actually had a copy of all of the photographs. And later (laughs) And I had access to them because I was the one who had actually, like, gotten the permission from the person to use the photographs. It was personal photographs. You know, we, we actually ended up using them later in a frontline film. So that was something that I've never really shared publicly, but it was a really important moment for me. That is so
0: interesting, Rainey. I, I think, I mean, it sounds like you were just always destined to work in public broadcasting. Just before you go, Rainie, um, c- you know, could you just sum up um, why public broadcasting is so important here in the US? I, I genuinely don't think we can overstate it. And I don't think our British audience and our Irish audience will really grasp how important the work you are doing at Frontline is because we just take public broadcasting for granted. I appreciate it that difference,
1: actually, because I work with British broadcasters all the time. I mean, we have so many collaborations with Channel 4 and the BBC and Arte in France and, you know, just really deep collaborations. So for the United States, you know, I feel like one of the things I always felt, and this goes back to the very early part of my career, is that people across the economic spectrum should have access to high-quality journalism, clear-eyed, vetted, High quality journalism if they can't afford a subscription to the New York Times or The Washington Post, they should also have and be privy to really thoughtful, deep journalism like you have on the PBS News hour or NOVA for example, or frontline, of course, right and I just really believe that the American public needs this, they need to be educated. The other thing is that i've always felt so strongly about is you know PBS is actually you don't need to pay for it as a service, right? You can just turn it on. And in fact, you can just turn it on in, in streaming, um, in the streaming environment as well. So Frontline's in front of the paywall. So you can see and stream all of our films. So we're fully digital at this point, of course, right? But also if you can't afford cable, let's say, right? You can't afford Netflix. That's why this is so essential to take into account that not everybody can afford to pay for their media, for their high quality media. And that there still needs to be a place for this type of thoughtful, long-form journalism that really is in the public interest. And that's why I continue to stay at Frontline, feel inspired to work inside PBS and inside the system that has what I believe is equity at the center.
0: And that's something that I care deeply about. Brilliant, Rainey. Well, so well said. And thank you so much for coming on the Media Tribe podcast. Thank you for having me. Always a pleasure to chat, Rainey. Thank you so much. If you liked what you heard on this episode of Media Tribe, tune in next week as I'll be dropping new shows every week with all sorts of legendary folk from the industry. And if you could leave me a review and rating, that would be really appreciated. Also, get in touch on social media at Shauna on Twitter or at Shauna Kinnair on Instagram and feel free to suggest new guests. Right, that's it. Until next week, see you then. This episode is edited by Ryan Ferguson.